Good morning. We are finally back here in Romans and uh, moving forward now. We were, we were in verses 18 through 27 for, I think, since the beginning of summer, actually. Um, and so and then we took a break for Christmas and we are back in Romans this morning and we're going to hit the ground running. That doesn't mean that we're going to make a bunch of forward progress in the text necessarily, but we are, we are diving in the deep end here, starting in verse 28. Uh, we've, we've, we've sort of made it to the point in Romans where people really start to get tripped up here. Isn't this where it starts? Uh, really from right here, Romans eight twenty eight, really through the end of chapter 11. I think it's perhaps the section of the Bible that causes the most conversation or perhaps has caused the most controversy historically. Uh, I mean, the, these are some of the words that we're going to be getting at Starting today and moving forward here in these chapters, we're going to see words like purpose. Uh, and not, not in the sense of like a purpose-driven life, but the word purpose here speaking of God's divine plans and purposes before the foundation of the world for every single thing that happens in your life type of purpose. Uh, we're going to see a scary word called predestined. That one's caused some controversies, hasn't it? We're going to see the word chosen. We're going to see a big scary word called elected, election. Uh, we're going to see foreknowledge. Those words have uh, historically caused division in the church, and it's not because there's a problem with the text. Let me put that out there at the front. That's not the issue. I, I want to I say this at the front, just so that you understand um, the way that we're planning on going through this. Uh, it's, it's my desire, it's our desire, as we go through this section, not to avoid these topics, not even to tiptoe through them, not, not, not even to concern ourselves if what the text says offends somebody. Really because Paul makes it clear in other spots that really every single word of this book is offensive to the natural man. He calls, he calls the cross the most offensive thing. Do you mean to tell me that I am a sinner condemned to death and that the only thing that can save me is the death of God my Savior on a criminal's cross? That I have to bow to Him? That's the most offensive thing according to Scripture. So I don't think it does us any good to avoid these topics. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think tiptoeing through them is the way to go, not trying to be offended by them. 
In fact, I think the reason that there's been so many problems partly is because we have tried to navigate our way through this safely with hurting as few feelings as possible, perhaps. And that doesn't mean that we're going to come in here and just be swinging battle axes around trying to chop people up. That's not the point. But what we want to do is we want to let the text speak for itself. Because this is what I'm convinced about, and I hope this is what you're convinced about too, that these things would not be in here if they weren't for us and for our good. We, we miss that sometimes when we read some of this stuff or we, we pull a book off the shelf called Four Views on the end times or five views on election or whatever it is and you see people bickering back and forth about what position is what we forget the fact that this was written for our good for our learning so that we can grow in christ and so that god can be glorified that's why it's here in fact there's not a single word in this book written that wasn't written for that purpose it's for us and for our salvation. And so we need to approach this section with that in mind that, look, I'm going to hit some stuff that's going to hurt. I'm going to get some stuff that I don't like. But I know that God has written this in his word through his apostles and prophets for my sake. That's, that's the foundation that we need to approach this with. Um, and I have a, it's a personal philosophy when it comes to difficult things, and that is to lean into difficulty. Uh, if you think of difficulty as a strong wind blowing at you, if you're not leaning into it, you're going to fall over and get blown away. I remember one time, I don't remember when it was, we were, it was a camping trip, we were at the beach. Seth was there, I don't know if you remember this. We were, we were, we were up near a cliff, it was a pretty big drop off, and the wind was blowing had to be 60 miles an hour and Seth is leaning like 45 degrees into the wind and it's holding him up that's the only way you can stand when a strong wind's blowing against you though and I've learned it the hard way uh, avoiding difficulty never makes anything better in fact it often makes things worse and so I, and I learned this I didn't I didn't just discover this one day I learned this by working with um, with Scott Ritter, actually, he taught me, working with him a number of years here at the church, to lean into difficult situations. And if you ever watched Scott with the youth group, but if something would come up, he would be stepping into it immediately to, to deal with it. Uh, it's, it's, my, it's my natural tendency to run from things. That's probably all of our natural tendencies. I, I, some of us are probably more fighters than others. Uh, but it's my tendency to go hide under a rock until stuff's blown over. But you tend to find out when you come out from under the rock that nothing blew over and things are actually worse. And so I've been, I've, I've set myself to lean into difficulty. The point being of all of this really is that anything we go through in, in regards to election, predestination, foreknowledge, all that stuff, uh, blame it on Scott. That's the issue. That's, that's the point. That's what I want to get at. So... Uh, anything you don't like, go to him. Um, I will say this. Uh, starting now and moving forward, you're probably going to have questions. And I'm not going to answer them all up here every week. That's just not going to happen. 
tonight, though, we do have our burning question night. And that is, if you have questions uh, that have been burning within you, that's why we call it burning question night, uh, your pastors will be up here on the stage ready to be grilled by you for questions on the Bible and theology and life. And so what I'm doing here, and I'm asking you kindly, is I'm setting the ball up on the tee for you to ask uh, Mike and James these hard questions tonight. That's the point. So, um, the, Now, when I say that this, this stuff, what I'm saying about this stuff is that it, it doesn't have to be scary or difficult. Uh, it is scary in some sense, and it is difficult in some sense, but it's not in the sense that this stuff was written for scholars. We think about it that way sometimes. These pages here, these forbidden pages here are for the scholars, and that's not true. They're for us. They're written for you and me, that we can know God and knowing him become more like Jesus. And so we need every word of this text, and I want us to believe it, and I want us to embrace it, that we need these things for life and godliness, to love these words. And so, here we are, we're in this section, it, it began, really it began all the way in chapter 5, uh, but Paul is concluding this big thought from 5 through 8 here, where eight's sort of the concluding chapter. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, he, he, he's wrapping up what he's saying. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what he's been explaining in 5, 6, and 7 is all of these things that pop up in our lives that would say, yeah, you're saved, but no, you're still condemned because of this. And yeah, you're saved, but no, you're still condemned because of this. And they're not small things. They're big things. He, ta- he tackles life and death and indwelling sin. That's what chapter 7 was about, was this battle that we have within us that though we're saved, we still wake up and struggle with sin. And so he he tackles all that in 5, 6, and 7, and he gets to chapter 8, and he starts off and he says, There is therefore, based on all this evidence that I had just given you in these chapters, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have been justified by faith, chapters 3 and 4, You are in Christ, and he stood condemned in your place. You don't stand condemned any longer. That's the the headline for chapter 8. Then we get down to verse 18, and he starts talking in this future sense of where we're headed. But he starts off with this comparison between what we deal with now and what we will have with Christ in the future. And so in verse 18, he gives us this, this other heading, and then he makes a detour for a few verses. And so we purposefully took a detour with Paul in the summer. He, he gives us this verse, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And then here's the detour, and it's not really a detour or a sidetrack. He just goes into explaining what sufferings are. And that's what we did over the course of the summer, where it was to look at fallen creation, to see the results of sin in our culture, to to see the results of, of 
our corrupted nature on ourselves to even deal with some of the hard topics that we dealt with. That when Paul's talking about the word sufferings here, he's not he's not using it lightly. He's not he's not just trying to find a word to explain some tough stuff we that, that we deal with. He's talking about the most difficult things, and that is the indwelling sin and the results of corruption in our bodies, in our minds, in the way that we think and act, this suffering that we deal with, both from the inside and the outside. That's what we worked through this summer. Paul's point here is that those sufferings even though to us right now seem like and are the biggest thing in existence, right? Some of you woke up this morning and your sin that still dwells in your members was the first thing on your mind. It's what you deal with on a daily basis. So it seems like this massive thing in front of you. Paul is saying that thing, this suffering, both the internal and the external, all of the difficulties and tragedies that we face in life, all of that, he says, that, 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 that crush us. He says all of that, it's not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. That is, if there is a scale And you were to sit this on the scale and you were to sit the glory that's to be revealed to us on the other side, that it would shoot this off into space. That the scale isn't even, that suffering isn't even worthy of sitting on that scale. That's what his point is. And he he makes the detour to, to, to explain the sufferings. And then he comes back right here where we're going to start to explain God's point of view on what takes place in all the things that happen in the life of a believer. And I'm going to read the text here in a second, by the way, but just before we get into it, this verse 28, uh, this is not the text to tell somebody uh, when tragedy strikes. I think it's probably often the text that we go to, but it's not the text to tell somebody when tragedy strikes, when, when someone's sitting on the curb, there's a car wreck, and there's been a death, and they're weeping. We don't sit down next to them and say, you know, God has a purpose in this, and all things work together for good. It's true. We need to understand it. We need to understand the theological implications of it. But this isn't the, the text to use right there. Paul tells us to weep with those who weep. You know, this is, the, this is the problem that Job's friends had, wasn't it? They were even worse off the deep end. What happened? What was your problem, Job? What did you do? Tell us what you did. We know you've got some skeletons in your closet. What are they? And weep with those who weep. I just want to put that out there before we get into this. Let me read it. In fact, I'm going to start in 18. And I'm going to finish in 30. And we're just going to look at 28 today. This is what Paul writes. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's our verse right here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So we're, we're right in the middle of a paragraph here, but this is a, a switch in Paul's thought right here. <clears throat> the previous two verses, he's talking about the Spirit helping us in our weakness. Uh, that is, in this fallenness, when we're tempted to turn the other direction, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses that, in that he takes our wandering hearts and he points them back to the Father. He's speaking of the Spirit's work in the believer's life. You, you know the wandering heart, don't you? Where your heart is often pointed in the wrong direction. It is the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God to take your heart and to point it constantly back to the Father. That's what he does. That's what Paul's telling us he does in our weakness. It's verses 25, 26, 27. And then he tells us here in 28 that we know something. That this is something, believer, that we need to be sure of. Not only do we need to be sure of, but we also need to be assured of. That what he says here is not something that we need to waffle on, but it's something that we need to grasp firmly and hold on to it for life. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, maybe you haven't thought through this too much. Maybe, maybe because it hurts your brain a little. Or maybe because you're afraid of what you may find digging into this text. But it is for our good that we dive into this. That's what it's here for. And so he says this. We know this, that for those who love God. Now we need to stop right there because 
we get this wrong, it throws off the whole rest of, well, the next few chapters, doesn't it? What, what does he mean by, for those who love God? Because if we get this wrong, this, the misunderstanding here will do nothing but pile a ton of guilt on us, I think. This is not what he's saying to you, believer. That it's only in those times where your hearts are pointed in the right direction and you are actively loving God that things will work together for good. That's not what he's saying. And that's important. It's important to get that. Because we can often find ourselves in a difficult situation. Something happened outside of our control and we quickly go to, is God punishing me for something? You know, I wasn't a very good Christian last week. Is he trying to deal with me by having tragedies strike? And, and is that what's going on here? And start even maybe doubting our own salvation because of that. That's not what he's saying here. Those who love God is a description of a people. It's a, it's a defining characteristic of a person. Now, who is that person is the question. That person is a Christian. And so, you can take this off your conscience right now. Believer, if you are a Christian, according to the Bible, you are a God lover. Now, listen, I understand. You could say, well, look, I saw your life last week and you don't seem much like a God lover, at least on Wednesdays and Fridays. What's going on there? Right. Can you look at your week this last week and say, I can be defined as a lover of God. There's plenty of times where we go, my goodness. You know, I walked into church last week and I walked into church this week, but the in-between was just kind of a blur because there wasn't much interaction with the Father there. He's not necessarily talking about what we do. He's talking about who we are. And the reason is this. John says in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. The reason that we are lovers of God is because he first loved us. In other words, loving God is definitional to the believer. This comes with the package. When you were justified, when you were regenerated, when you were made alive by the Spirit, part of his work was to make you into a God lover. That's what Paul's been talking about in these previous texts. In, in Romans chapter 7, where he talks about, in, in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members I see another law waging war against my mind. He's talking about at the core of ourselves, what happened at salvation was that God took hearts that love ourselves and he pointed them to himself and caused them to be hearts that love God. Now, we got the whole problem of indwelling sin and all the stuff around, around us that sometimes results and causes us to do other things and we make wrong decisions because we haven't been completely sanctified and made like Christ yet. But if you could peel back everything and get to the core of ourselves, the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is that an unbeliever is a self-lover and a believer is a lover of God. And the way that happened was because the Spirit did that work. That's That's... That's what Paul has told us in these 
first seven chapters. And so when we get to chapter eight and he says, for those who love God, he's talking about what he's been talking about the previous seven chapters, that this is a believer, a believer and in Christ person is someone who loves God. That's you. Even though our lives don't often reflect it. This is what happened at salvation. The spirit came and changed you from a you lover to a God lover. And you have to lay that out at the front because I don't want you to feel left out of this verse because you haven't been a good Christian as you should. Otherwise, we're all left out of this verse, aren't we? If you're saved by God, this verse is about you. Now, we'll get to the middle part of this verse in a second, but jump to this last clause here. He says, for those again. He describes this person again. He's describing this person, the same person, but he's using a few different words. Just so you know, I'm not making up that those who love God are defining characteristics of believers God lays it on himself for those who are called according to his purpose. By the way, we get one of those scary words right there. The word called is the word elected. Here's what Paul's saying. Your loving God, your your description of loving God is and has been caused by your being effectually called by God to be his. I'll say that again and then I'll explain what effectually means. Your being a person who loves God is and has been caused by You're being effectually called by God to be his. Now, what is this effectual call? This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, although John chapter 6 is a passage to wrestle with if you have trouble with what Paul's teaching here. There's two verses specifically in John chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds in verse 37 and verse 44. Kind of work as bookends on this doctrine. And we'll start with 44 and then we'll go back to 33. This effectual call. The G, the John, the, one of the people writing the Bible that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter eight, Jesus says in John six forty four, pretty clearly, he says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." That's this call. And the reason it's called effectual is because when he does it, it is accomplished. See, keep reading. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what will happen, he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father draws, the person comes, and he is raised up on the last day. There's, there's, no, there's no break in that chain, as we will see in the next few verses in Romans chapter 8. The Father does the drawing, the person is called, it's effectual in that they come to him and are raised up to be with Christ on the last day. And this is connected, look a few verses earlier to verse 37, to what Jesus says here. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you have the Father... You have Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father does the drawing, in verse 44. And then in verse 37, you have him saying, everyone that the Father draws comes to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. How do you get in this? The Father does the drawing. How is it assured if the Father draws, you come? That's what it means for his call to be effectual and that it actually does what it what he says it's going to do. I don't have the ability to effectually call. You don't either. Even if last night, I was thinking how to explain the effectual call. The kids are upstairs. It's dinner time. It's ready to go. It's on the table. Come down for dinner, please. It's five minutes later and there's no kids downstairs. That is an ineffectual call, is what that is. He goes up and says, why are you not downstairs? Oh, we had a thing to do. I'm sure you did, because you're three. You have lots of things to do. That's an ineffectual call. The Bible's definition of the effectual call is that the Father says, come, and the person comes. That's the effectual call. And that's good news for those of us who are in Christ here, what he's talking about. A defining characteristic of us is that we're called according to his purpose. It results in that we are those who love God. Those are bookending this, this explanation of what goes on in life here, right in the middle. God calls a particular people to himself and its purpose before the foundation of the world. Same words that Paul uses in Ephesians 1. It's effectual. He accomplishes what he sets out he's going to do. And the result is that this person loves God. So if you are called believer and you are, if you are a believer, then you are a lover of God. You can be confident then that God is working his perfect will in your life, namely to glorify himself in you and to make you more like Jesus. Now, let's get to the middle here. How does he do this? Paul doesn't use small words here. There's no small words used here. He uses big, all-encompassing words. Look at this. 
We know that for those who love God, he doesn't say some things. He doesn't say most things. He says all things. Now, you may not like that. I may not like that. That's not what Paul's concerned about in the text, though. He's telling us what is happening in life. You may have faced some crazy difficulties this week. 2019 might have been a terrible year for you. You may have been struck with tragedy, with sickness, with death, with loss of finances. Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He uses the word all. All things. Every single thing that has taken place in your life, according to this verse, was planned and purposed by God for good. Now, you may need to wrestle with that for the next 15 years, 20 years, 80 years. But that's what the text says. That's right here we get a little tripped up, isn't it? Uh, maybe a lot of tripped up. Because there's been some horrible things that have happened in life. How do we need to look at this? First of all, we can't look at the word good like Americans. That's one problem. Now, that's hard to do because we are Americans. Uh, how do we define the word good, though? Finances, uh, things, family, health. Those things, are, those things are good in a sense. In fact, those things are good in a big sense. I don't want to, I don't want to make them seem small. They're good in a very big sense. But Paul here is talking in the biggest sense of good. This is what Paul's talking about. When Paul, what Paul means by the word good is those things in this life that contribute to that final salvation, when we're standing before God, when we see Christ face to face, Paul tells us that we will be like him when we see him. That we're going to be like Christ when we see him. How does he accomplish that? What, is, what do we go through in life to get to that point? It's all things. He's talking about with this word good. Everything that contributes to that final salvation and sustain us on the path to that final salvation. He doesn't mean that the evil we experience in this life will always be reversed or turned into good. In fact, many of the things we suffer will contribute to our good only by refining our faith and strengthening our hope. I think it's very dangerous for us to have a small view of this verse, to sit there in the midst of tragedy and say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how this works together for good. 
I hear people all the time say, you know what, something tragic happened to me 20 years ago, but if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have landed the job I have now and be able to pay my bills the way that I'm able to pay for them now. That's true, and that is good in some sense, but it's not good in the grand sense that Paul's talking about here. Paul took Job through the tragedies of his life, not so that he would be able to have a bigger house at the end. That wasn't the purpose of it. It wasn't so that he would be able to have more cattle. I learned my lesson because the last time I didn't manage my cattle well, and this time I was able to do it and I have a larger crop. That's not what he's doing with Job. At the end of the book, he stands there as a man who has now been made more like Christ his Savior, and God has glorified himself in that. And when Job stands before God, fully sanctified, glorified before him, he can say to Job, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been through and accomplished the very things that I had planned in purpose to make me more glorious and to make you more like my son. That's the purpose of it. And so the the promise to us in this, and it's a very good one, is there's nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and to bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of eternity with Christ. We can be confident in this, that every single thing we experience, the good things as we would call them, and the bad things, as we would call them, are purposeful. That there is no meaninglessness to life. I've talked to many people who believe that life is meaningless. I heard one person describe it as, you are a flesh bag of chemical processes. Wow, what a description of a person. And that nothing matters. Nothing you do matters. You can be evil, you can be good. They don't even define those words because they're based in morality. You can do things that make those chemical processes feel better for you or feel worse. It doesn't matter. In the end, you're going to die. You're going to be in the ground. People are going to forget you in a few hundred years and nothing matters anymore. That's the view of our world, isn't it? That's not what the text says. It says that even in your darkest hour where you were experiencing the most difficult tragedy that a human being can face, that you are facing something that God has purposed in your life to make you more like his son. That doesn't necessarily make the suffering any easier, does it? It doesn't necessarily make it less painful. But it puts us in a position where we know that our God is at work and that at the end, all of these things will be summed up in Christ so that God is glorified to the maximal degree and we are most satisfied in him in a way that could never have been if he didn't do it this way. What a glorious God that we serve. 
And if we can trust God in this, love this verse, even though we don't want to wrap our minds around it and grasp onto it firmly, then we can set ourselves to walk through life knowing that every step we take has a a purpose to it. And it's not just a purpose to get to a bigger house or better finances or or better health or or happier children it's to a place where Christ will be most magnified in the world and we be like him that's the desire of a believer isn't it perhaps where we need to start is to say father give me that desire Some of us would rather have the big house and the big bank account and the health than to have Christ magnified. Father, do a work in us by your spirit who helps us in our weakness to point our hearts to the Father, to be about the main thing. Put us in a place where if we were stripped of all of this, that we would still be able to worship Christ our Savior because He is all in all. That's what we need. We pray for us. Father, thank you for this text. It's a hard one. We don't necessarily like it. We don't necessarily like it because the implications are that there's a design to our suffering. Sometimes maybe it's easier to think that this is all random. That we just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Father, according to your word, every single thing that happens in our lives is for us and for our good if we're in Christ. And Father, help us to love that and to believe that. Help us to walk through life knowing that you are doing a good work in us. That there's nothing that takes place in our life that isn't purposed for your glory and for our good. Father, help us to understand good in the way that you understand it, not in the way that the world teaches us to understand it. Father, allow us to be offended by your word. Father, if we're not offended by your word, we're not, we don't have our minds turned on. We don't have our hearts turned on. Allow us to be offended by it and then take your spirit. Allow your spirit to take your word and conform us to it. We need that work to be done. Father, we ask all of this in humility. We thank you that you are glorifying yourself, Father. Make us more like Jesus by whatever means necessary. Father, would you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have the ushers come forward and we'll take the Lord's Supper.